When America entered World War II in 1941, the United States Army had no real special operations unit. While observing the British commandos, Brigadier General Lucian Triscuit Jr. was inspired to reform and activate the first Rangers unit in World War II. Triscuit selected the title Rangers because the title of commando had already belonged to the British. And he wanted something more fitting to America. He wrote, quote, I selected Rangers because few words have a more glamorous connotation in American military history. It was therefore fitting that the organization destined to be the first of the American ground forces to battle Germans on the European continent in World War II should be called Rangers. In compliment to those in American history who exemplified such high standards of individual courage, initiative, determination, and ruggedness, fighting ability and achievement. Truscott was a student of military history and a fan of the 1940 movie Northwest Passage. The movie starred Spencer Tracy and Robert Young. It was popular and may have contributed heavily to his choice of name. Because of the Kenneth Roberts novel, the film highlighted the exploits of Rogers Rangers in the French and Indian War. Men, you've followed me faithfully and without questions, and I want you to know that I appreciate it. And now it's time you should know where we're going. I don't have to tell you who the Abenakis are. Most of you here have lost folks or friends in Indian raids since 57. You might have right we have. Well, you'll find their scalps at St. Francis. Once the Ranger unit was formed, the next task was to select a commander for the battalion. After much deliberation, it was decided that Captain William Orlando Darby, an artillery officer who had cavalry and infantry operational experience as well as amphibious training, was chosen to lead and train the Rangers. They would be known as Darby's Rangers. We could not discuss the French and Indian War without going more into depth about one of the most iconic army units ever created, Rogers Rangers. They were an elite force trained in reconnaissance and guerrilla warfare, and their leader would become what many refer to as the father of the United States Army Rangers, and would write the rules of ranging. The rules that were read by Darby to the 1st Ranger Battalion prior to action in World War II. The rules that would follow the 75th Ranger Regiment to this day, and the rules that are considered as the model of all Ranger activities. These rules also would form the basis of the standing orders taught today to United States Army Rangers. In today's video, we are going to discuss the formation of the American Army Rangers and the Rangers' incredible victory at the Battle of Snowshoes.
after Braddock's defeat on the Monongahela, Britain's military plans for North America virtually fell apart. Major General William Johnson more than ever needed a person well acquainted with the haunts and passes of the enemy and the Indian method of fighting, especially as Braddock's replacement, Governor William Shirley, laid out his plans to capture Fort Niagara, Crown Point, and Duquesne with attacks on Fort Frontenac on the north shore of Lake Ontario and an expedition through the wilderness of the main district and down the Chaudière River to attack the city of Quebec. At 23 years old, Robert Rogers was six feet tall, well-portioned and well-known for all trials of strength. He was recommended to Major General Johnson as an excellent scout. The Battle of Lake George was where Rogers and his rangers would stretch their legs and make a name for themselves as scouts in the British Army. For more on that, you can check out my last episode, The Battle of Lake George, here on the podcast. Rogers was born in Massachusetts in 1733 to a Scotch Irish family. The family would leave Massachusetts and find themselves in the wilderness of New Hampshire. In 1744, when King George's War broke out, Rogers joined the New Hampshire militia as a scout and served for several years scouting and guarding the New Hampshire frontier. When the French and Indian War started, Rogers was actually in jail on counterfeit charges. However, as soon as Rogers could make bond, he enlisted for the New Hampshire militia once again. Rogers was also able to bring about 50 men with him to enlist. Because of that, he was promptly commissioned captain and placed in command of Company 1. After the British success at the Battle of Lake George, General Johnson would dispatch Rogers on continuous patrol duties. In October, Rogers and five other men left to do reconnaissance on a new fort the French were building at Ticonderoga, some 16 miles south of the French-held Crown Point. On October 8th, Rogers and his party would ambush a French canoe on Lake George, killing all but four occupants. Later that month, Rogers set out to capture a Crown Point prisoner. After a five-day march, he and four of his fellow soldiers crept up to within 300 yards of the French battlements, near enough to hear the bugle calls and see the white and gold fleur-de-lis swinging lazily on its pole. He wrote, My men lay concealed in a thicket of willows, while I crept something nearer to a large pine log, where I concealed myself by holding bushes in my hand. About ten o'clock, a single man marched out directly toward our ambush. When I perceived him within ten yards of me, I sprung over the log, met him, and offered him quarters, which he refused, and made a pass at me with a dirk, which I avoided, and presented my fursy to his breast. But he still pushed on with resolution, and obliged me to dispatch him. This gave an alarm to the enemy, and made it necessary for us to hasten to the mountain. Rogers and his ranger company would confront their enemies in the dark and foreboding northern woodlands. They conducted regular reconnaissance and ambush patrols deep inside enemy territory, as well as attacks on French and Indian patrols near Fort Carrion and St. Frederick. During the winter months, Rogers' patrols were the only military activity against the enemy. On Lake George in January of 1756, the Rangers seized an enemy sleigh and took two prisoners. 
Rogers launched a long-range reconnaissance mission to Fort St. Frederick in February to assess enemy strength once again. The Rangers torched barns and slaughtered livestock and scalped heads before leaving the region with tactical intelligence. Rogers was so brutal that he even earned the name Wobi Madando by native warriors, meaning the white devil. Even France's brutal mercenaries were disturbed by the rangers' savagery, since they frequently imitated the natives' practice of hatching and scalping victims. In January of 1756, while Rogers' rangers were building their reputation, the British in North America were about to see a shakeup in command. Shirley was not getting along with the other generals, and Parliament had tired of the infighting in North America. And they decided to replace William Shirley as Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in North America with Lord Loudoun, with Major General James Abercrombie as his deputy. England was not the only one that was shaking things up in command, but the French as well had decided to send in new officers to North America. In May of 1756, reinforcements from the French regular army arrived in New France, headed by Major General Louis-Joseph de Montcalm and seconded by the the Chevalier de Levis and Colonel Francois-Charles de Borlamat, what she said, all accomplished veterans of the War of Austrian Secession. On May 18, 1756, Britain formally declared war on France extending the battle throughout Europe and giving rise to the Seven Years' War. Rogers' successful activities in hostile territory earned him further official recognition. In March of 1756, he was appointed captain of His Majesty's Independent Company of Rangers. The document stated Rogers' continued mission. From time to time, use your best endeavor to distress the French and Indian allies by sacking, burning, and destroying their houses, barns, barracks, canoes, bateaux, and by killing their cattle of every kind, and at times to endeavor to waylay, attack, and destroy their convoys of provisions by land and water in any part of the country, wheresoever they may be found. By November, the single ranger company had grown to four. The organization was officially renamed the Independent Companies of American Rangers, but the whole was commonly called Rogers Rangers. In January of 1757, Rogers and his rangers were assigned a task that would not only put their reconnaissance abilities to the test, but would also push their fighting abilities to the limit. Rogers and 84 rangers filed out of Fort William Henry at the southern end of Lake George on the cold, gloomy winter day on July 17th for a long-range reconnaissance trip to the northern French forts. Each ranger carried with them a flint musket, powder, and 60 rounds of ammunition. Each man also carried a tomahawk and a knife for close combat. The patrol hiked several hundred yards to Lake George's frozen shore, strapped on razor-sharp ice skates, and raced northward. 
They trekked roughly 15 miles over the ice before setting up camp on the lake's east shore near the first narrows. Rogers examined his soldiers the next morning. He identified 11 people who had suffered serious injuries during the ice march, and despite their protest, ordered them back to Fort William Henry. Rogers and his 74-man force marched on the ice under the cover of the mountains along the eastern coast. They moved to the western beach as the sun set. The group of soldiers marched for 12 miles before setting up camp on the western side. The rangers were deep into enemy territory on the morning of January 19th. They continued on the ice for another three miles when Rogers wisely ordered them off the frozen lake and into snowshoes for an overland journey. The group marched another eight miles into the rugged mountains before setting up camp for the night. The soldiers emerged from their woods halfway between Fort Carrion and St. Frederick and quickly set up ambush positions along the bank. Scouts soon reported two French sleighs approaching them from the south over the iced lake. Rogers moved quickly to intercept the hostile patrol. Lieutenant John Stark and a group of 20 rangers ran north to stop the attackers. To halt their withdrawal, Rogers and 30 soldiers headed south along the beach. Captain Thomas Speakman and his troops remained in the middle to carry out the ambush and capture. As the sleighs reached Speakman's section, Rogers noticed something strange down the lake. Eight more sleighs emerged from the midst and rain. He sent two runners to tell Speakman and Stark to stay there until the entire French column passed through the ranger ambush zone. The couriers screamed the news to Speakman, but they were too late to reach Stark. Stark and his men followed the original plan and sprang the trap. Rogers and Speakman then joined the assault. Seven Frenchmen quickly became prisoners, but three managed to escape. During the battle, Rogers was struck twice in the head and once in the hand. The French said they were at a disadvantage since they were floundering in snow up to their knees without snowshoes. When night fell, Rogers and the remaining soldiers retreated six miles to Lake George, where they dispatched Stark with two men to Fort William Henry for aid. Rogers returned to Fort William Henry on January 23rd with 48 able-bodied men and six injured soldiers, with seven rangers captured by the French. Among those captured was Private Thomas Brown, who would write a popular pamphlet about his time as a prisoner. As the rangers silently drew back, those who were presumed dead were overlooked and left on the field. Captain Thomas Speakman had been shot several times, during that first volley, as had Private Thomas Brown. Miraculously, though, they had survived the night. Hoping to have found a position of safety, they were joined by a British regular who had volunteered for the expedition, Private Roger Barker. The injured men, fighting the agonizing pain of their wounds and the brutal cold, were forced to start a fire for a bit of warmth. Soon, their biggest nightmare became a reality. Brown observed a warrior approaching the camp and crawled into the brush to escape discovery. However, the Indians saw the other two men. They scalped Speakman and hauled Barker away. Brown later wrote, quote, Seeing this dreadful tragedy, I concluded, if possible, to crawl into the woods and there die of my wounds. But not being far from Captain Speakman, he saw me and begged me, for God's sake, to give him a tomahawk 
that I might put an end to his life. I refused him and exhorted him as well as I could to pray for mercy, as he could not live many more minutes in that deplorable condition, being on the frozen ground and covered with snow. Brown attempted to flee the attacking army while wearing no shoes. He crept through the snow-covered forest for the rest of the day and night avoiding French and Indian patrols. But his luck ran out the next morning when he was seen by four native warriors. Brown attempted to outrun them, but due to his weakened condition, he was unable to do so, and they gained ground swiftly. Nonetheless, he ignored their cries for him to stop. They were roughly 15 yards behind him with weapons ready, and Brown prayed they'd shoot and kill him. Instead, the warriors charged forward and seized him. They used dried leaves to bandage his wounds and marched him a short distance to a larger gathering of French and Indians. A French interpreter mercilessly questioned him about the strength and current position of the ranger force. Despite being shown the disfigured remains of Speakman, he remained silent and provided evasive responses. Brown pleaded for shoes and food, but the French interpreter said he'd have to wait until they'd gone a quarter mile to Fort Carrion. Nevertheless, before the journey, the Indians who had seized him handed him shoes and food. He was also reunited with Robert Barker who had previously been taken prisoner. Brown was threatened in death in retaliation for the Rangers' victory, but he was eventually brought to Montreal and remained a prisoner for the French until November 1758. Rogers was taken to Albany for medical attention for the wounds he obtained during his Rangers' first major combat. It was also the first time that Rogers had not returned on a mission with all his troops. However, British officers were encouraged, and it was agreed that Roger and his Rangers had behaved gallantly. Because of this, Rogers recruited nine companies of Rangers to fight for the British during the French and Indian War, and he would then develop a set of rules for them to obey. These rules are known as the Rules of Ranging, and there are 28 of them. If you would like to read the rules for yourself, a link in the description will be available below. Robert Rogers is often called the father of the United States Army Rangers. We know that he was inspired by Church's Rangers, Benjamin Church, and you can actually learn more about Benjamin Church and his unit of rangers in the video about King Philip's War. As always, thank you guys so much. The next episode, we are going to be covering the massacre at Fort William and Henry. The massacre that will inspire author James Finemore Cooper to write The Last of the Mohicans. So if you have not already, please subscribe, press that bell so that you will get notified whenever I upload a new video, and I will see you guys in the next one. Chevalier de la vraie, la vie, l'hiver, 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 and Colonel Francois Charles de Bollemanche. Bollemanche? Bollemanche. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> Bollemanche. Bollemanche? 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 Bollemanche. Let's see. Maybe it'll say it for me. Borlamac, all accomplished veterans of the War of the Austrian Succession. Okay, stop. On May 18, 1750, Chevalier de Levis and Colonel Francois Charles de Borlamac. Chevalier. Okay. Chevalier.